Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to uh, finish chapter 12, and then we have like one more chapter left. But I'm going to do a little review, if you don't mind, because we need to um, settle some things that Hebrews has already spoken, and I want to remind us of these things. But I first want to tell you a little story. This was in 1986, and I, this guy's name, you know, if a R and a W are together, I sound like Elmer Fudd. So please don't laugh. <laughs> I'm going to say it really slow. In 1986, Texas gem dealer Roy Whetstone, whew, that was close, waskly wabbit, um, was pawing through a Tupperware bowl of cheaply priced rocks at a mineral show in Arizona when he came across a lavender gray potato-sized stone that looked a bit special. You want 15 bucks, he says to the guy across the table. The amateur collector said, tell you what, I'll let you have it for 10. It's not as really as pretty as the others. Wetstein walked away with the world's largest star sapphire, later valued at as high as $2.28 million. Can you believe that? He planned to sell this 1,900-carat stone in its uncut form for $1.5 million and put the profits in a trust for his two sons, each of whom gave Dad five bucks apiece to say, hey, why don't you get me something from the gem show? The story is not about Roy. It's about the guy on the other side of the table. And this is what the writer of the Hebrews is talking to them about. The story and the moral, I guess, of the story is if you don't know the value of what you possess, you may let it go for something far less. And that's what he was talking to, to the Hebrews. He was telling them, that it was a matter of perspective. How they thought, how they saw things would determine how they lived. Can you put up the first slide? I got slides. Can you believe this? Keynotes, sorry. Hey, I'm still writing, I'm still writing with pencil, okay? So, C.S. Lewis we can read that, but I want to just focus in on the last part of his, his quote. But because by it, Christianity, his worldview, his frame of reference, I see everything else. And that's what, he, uh, that's what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to say. Your worldview, how you see things, will determine how you live. So... These Jewish Christians were persecuted by Nero really, really savagely. I don't know if you know the history. Uh, Tacitus, uh, one of the Roman historians, was one of the first ones that wrote about Christianity. And it said that um, Nero kind of lit the city on fire and that the Romans were angry with him. So what kind of mayor or what kind of... Well, he was Caesar. But let's say... Uh, Steinberg lit part of the city on fire and then built a house over the, the rubble. And that's what 
That's what Nero did. He arsoned part of the Rome, and then he built a palace. So everyone started pointing fingers at him. So what did he do? Pointed fingers at someone else, Christians. And it was really horrific, guys. You know how in Hebrews 11, where it talked about sawn in two, blah, 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 he did something far worse. He, he dipped Christians in wax and burned them in his gardens for lighting. So, persecuted by Nero, these Christians, these Jewish Christians, were considering it easier, probably better for themselves, to move back to the Mosaic Law. Let's just get out of the limelight here. Though faced with suffering, he reminded them of the superior way through this, through this letter and who they were following. Jesus, the superior way. And the writer spoke through this whole book about Jesus, the superior word of God, superior to all created beings, the superior mediator of a new covenant, the superior high priest. His priesthood was superior to the Levites. His sacrifice was superior He was the superior altar, the superior temple. His results were superior. He was the superior example, and he was the superior life of the believer. Lord, as we said, what a beautiful name it is. We honor you. We worship you, Lord, now through the word of God. We honor you, and we thank you for who you are. You are superior. We worship you, Lord. Yet he warned them, lest they be deceived by their own hearts, the seduction of the spirit of the age, or the deception of the devil, that they could fall away and move away. Can I see the next um, keynote? keynote. I was going to say slide. We've had four warnings so far. Keep your fingers in in, uh, Hebrews 12. We will get there. But I want to set this up. The first one was drifting away. Not paying attention to what you have heard. I thought about this. When we were in uh, Kauai, there was a serious riptide one day. And, I mean, they literally said, don't go in. Although people went in anyway. I mean, you could actually see it go across. Right? You remember that? And there was a girl out on a little floaty. And she was just chilling, not paying attention. And suddenly I saw two lifeguards uh, all in red jumping out with a surfboard and starting to swim out. And I looked out, and she was way, way out there. And that's what the writer was telling them. You might not even know where you are, and you're way over here. So he was warning them to not drift away from every other word spoken. There's only one word. That's what he said at the beginning of the chapter, right? Or the beginning of the book. He said, don't drift away because of your circumstances. Don't drift away because of the neglect of the truth. And that means to fail to take care of this properly in our lives. Take care of the truth properly. And then he also warned them 
to not drift away by the currents and pressures of the world's systems. The second warning was unbelief, doubting. And I wrote, setting itself in opposition to God. Unbelief. You set yourself in opposition. And I have a uh, quote from a theologian named William Newell. It says this, Unbelief is not the inability to understand, but the unwillingness to trust. It is the will, not the intelligence that is involved. And I thought of, uh, in the Gospels, two people, Zacharias and Mary. Do you remember when Zacharias went into the temple? It was his time. And he's doing his stuff, and Gabriel, boom. And he was full of fear, which he should have been. But Gabriel's standing here, and he goes, hey, you're going to have a kid. You are? I mean, I am? I'm old. And he says this, how am I going to know that? Oh, yeah? You know how you're going to know that? You're not going to talk for nine months. Right? Well, why? His unwillingness to believe. Here's the thing. He already had an example, didn't he? Sarah and Abraham. He already had history on his side. And he goes, I'm too old. Well, wait a minute. God had already proven he could do this. And then we go to Mary. Gabriel pops in there. He says, you're going to have a child. Oh, how will that be? Almost sounds like she's going to ask the same kind of question. How will that be? Because I'm a virgin. Well, this is how. And she says, so be it. By the will of the Lord. Two different hearts. One unwilling. One saying, I trust. My wife is a math teacher. And there's a simple equation that the writer of the Hebrew says, belief equals rest. Belief equals rest. The third warning, is it up there? Immaturity. The inability to use God's wisdom in our practical living. Rick said something last week that the more mature we get, the more we operate in faith. But faith is not without intelligence and without using our minds. They were not able to relate doctrinal truth to their experience. They were not able to use God's wisdom to see through and to understand their present condition or to solve situations in their daily life. Do you remember we've talked maybe twice, two, three times, I think, during Hebrews about the sons of Issachar? <clears throat> who knew, their, knew the time and knew what to do with it. How do we do with it? Through the word of God. When Ann and I were new believers, really, really young, we were part of a leadership of a home group. And what was interesting is the leader of the home group went to do something else, the way we had it set up. And then, so we were like, well, who's going to do that? And well, I guess it's you. Me? I mean, that was... And so we had married couples, we had singles, but we had to deal with practical life. I had no... I mean, how am I going to... Ann and I weren't married yet. How am I going to talk to a married couple? I have no experience. Well, what did I do? 
go home every night and went, what does this say? What does this say? What does it say? And I brought that to the table. That was the only thing I could bring. And it really, really strengthened me in God's word, but it strengthened me in knowing that this is the practical knowledge of God that we can use in our lives. It's the only one I've ever read. It's the only one. So the fourth, and this one I probably think is maybe one of the most dangerous that the, uh, the Christians were holding to was that they were substituting or adding to the finished work of Christ on the cross. We have Christ, and then what else do I need to do? Well, I'm going to go back to the temple. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to... And what did the writer say? You're trampling underfoot. You're trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. Heavy, heavy stuff, right? But I think more, more so for us is that we would hold this, as Rick said this morning, is we would hold this as just common. I love what, what Bob said. This is a sacred moment. The cross is sacred. Do we hold that? Do we have an understanding of what it really is? Lord, I would say, open our eyes each and every day to the work of the cross. And it'll, it'll teach us how to live. It'll, it'll be the motive of how we live. So, you guys on Hebrews 12? Those are the four warnings. Guess what? We're coming to the final warning. If you were walking down a, uh, <clears throat> a tunnel and you heard a voice say, this is your last warning, would you keep going down the tunnel or would you maybe turn around and go the other way? And this is what the writer is doing. This is your last warning. Let me read. And this is a... The New American Standard, the ESV is really close. Verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to a blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you, oh, here we go. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Warning, this is your final warning. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less 
Shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God, and I want to say that, our God is a consuming fire. Heavy, heavy, heavy. But not really, because I'm going to get to that. So he compares and contrasts two hearts, two lives, two thoughts. Again, how we think is how we live. And he goes back in time to Sinai. And then he goes forward to where we are supposed to be, which is Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Can I have the, the next keynote a desert there are characteristics of Sinai that I want to touch on each one of these can be a teaching in and of itself so I'm going to I'm not going to stay too long on Sinai because that's not where we belong as he said but I want to juxtapose just juxtapose that with Mount Zion the desert what does that mean to me it means that they were wandering, that they were not settled, that they didn't know who they were. That's very interesting that you said that today. They didn't know who they were and who God was. They were not rooted and grounded in the love of God. And so I asked that question, who are we? When I was seven years old, I thought about this as I was studying, I looked in the mirror and I had the weirdest thought and I've never had that thought again, but it was inside of me. Have you ever looked in, who, who am I? And I know who that was speaking to me that day. That was God. I've never felt that again. And it was the, I looked in the mirror, who am I? That's a weird question, but it was so powerful and so strong. And he answered that question. But guys, he didn't answer it at this mountain. He answers it. At the other mountain. Fear and trembling. Darkness, gloom, flashes of lightning, fire, the blast of a trumpet. You know, they, they blew a ram's horn to, to congregate, but that blast of a trumpet came from heaven. You know that, right? That was supernatural, and it scared the heck out of them. Oh, guess what? We're going to hear a trumpet again, aren't we? but it's going to be way different. The earth quaked and shook, and I'm going to ask this question. Did the people understand his voice? I don't know. I remember, remember when Jesus came up out of the water? There was a voice. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It said some heard that voice. It said the others said it sounded like thunder. Some made it, might have heard it. Some might have. Even regardless, they begged him not to speak to them anymore. The holiness of God. We get a clear knowledge of ourselves, guys, 
<clears throat> when we look into the face of God and we don't stand up, right? And our comparisons with each other are futile. I'm not like that. I'm not like her. I'm, I'll never be like her. <laughs> I'm not like him. Oh, that guy. I know he's got issues. All of that falls short. In fact, Paul says, if you do that, you haven't come to a thought process of what this all about is, is all about. It's about God and about who we are before God. Boundaries and separation. You can't come near on your own. Do you remember when I spoke in chapter 4, 13? I said that was a pivotal scripture. And it talked about the holiness of God and that we would have to stand before him one day and give an account. And then what was wonderful was that the writer then goes, to have access now, he starts lying out all of that stuff. And I called it the Mysterium Tremendum. The holiness, the holiness of God <clears throat> repels us and draws us at the same time. Actually draws us, but when we get too close, it repels us because of who he is. We need access <clears throat> because of our sinfulness. And Jesus provided that. And we'll get to that in Zion. The old covenant. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sum up the old covenant in one sentence. You get what you deserve. You get what you deserve. You've seen all the commercials now? I'm entitled to. I deserve. I, you're right. They say it. You deserve. You know what you deserve without him? I was sitting in a parking lot. June 8th, 1990, 8.45 p.m. And God came to me. At a Grateful Dead concert. And the first thing I knew that I deserved hell. I can't explain it, but it was powerful. And Paul, who said I was the chief sinner of all, would never have been able to convince me of that. I knew I was, and I needed help. And the old covenant says you get what you deserve. Deuteronomy 28 and 29 says this, if you do these things, then you will be blessed. If you don't do these things, you will be cursed. You want to live under that? I don't. Our faithfulness couldn't keep the arrangement. Couldn't keep the arrangement. The law. I'm going to say this. We always look at the law as something like, I don't know, in modern day Christian, oh, the law is bad. The law isn't good. The Bible says the law is good. It's righteous. It's holy. The trouble isn't with the law. <laughs> it's with me. It is the standard of perfection and righteousness. You want to know God, you look at the law. That's, that was the revelation on Sinai. But Paul said this, that the power of sin was in the law. It took me a long time to, to figure that one out, but... The law doesn't create sin in people. It reveals it 
by demonstration that we can't obey it. You have no escape. The law has shut everyone under sin, and it brings a curse. Galatians 3.10. Why does it bring a curse? Because it says there, you have to do every single thing in it. Now, we don't talk about the law. None of you guys go to Jerusalem three times a year. None of you guys sacrifice cows or pigeons or no, doves or any of that stuff. So what do we really think about in Sinai when we talk about the law? And I, we use the term legalism, right? What can I do? We always say, what can I do? Well, let me ask you this. How many days does it take you to feel bad about sinning to get right with God? How many days? Four, eight, a month, a year? Or conversely, how many things good do you have to do? And I'm going to put him in Mario air quotes. How many good things do you have to do to feel better about yourself? That's Sinai. And we can't do it. I got to speed up. Earthly. Sinai represents that is of the earth. Temporary, passing away. The seduction that we would love this present world over that which is eternal. I saw a Verizon com, uh, commercial last night, and they were using the uh, Queen song. You know the uh, chorus in that song? I want it all, and I want it now. I, that, was my, <laughs> that was my anthem <laughs> back in the day. I want it all, and I want it now. And then the last... The last point in, in Sinai is, because I want to get to Zion, the inheritance not realized. And I'm going to say this, the inheritance wasn't just the promised land itself. The true inheritance was to dwell with God himself. God said this to them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and here's the point and brought you to myself. That's the inheritance, to be with him. So let's go to the new Jerusalem, Zion, where we belong. You did not come to this mountain, he said. You've come to this mountain, representing New Jerusalem. It is the inhabited city. We're not in a desert. There's fellowship. There's relationship. There's life. The city is mentioned in Hebrews more than any other New Testament book. It is the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Foundations mean this to me. Fixed, sure, secure, and it has order. You know, one of the things that just ticked me off during this whole thing was how can leaders allow their cities to just be destroyed? That is not God. And it, it just, well, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So 
I got to let that go. But I was angry. May it be a righteous anger that's in me. It is full of light. There is no shadow. There's no back alleyways. Because God dwells with them and he is the light. So there's no hiding. You know, the the Bible says, some men's sins are evident. Others will be exposed later. I think I want it to be evident now and dealt with. I don't want it to be later on. We are citizens of that reality with the sure truth that we will be perfected. That's what he says. The spirits of men made perfect. No sin. I do not understand that. I don't. But that's what I'm looking forward to. That I won't even have the propensity to sin. I don't get it. That's awesome. We are sons and daughters. Rick said that today. And he calls us the firstborn. There are nine New Testament occurrences of the word firstborn. Seven refer to Jesus himself. One refers to the firstborn in Egypt, in Hebrews. But this one refers to you and I. We are the firstborn. How can that be? Because we are in Christ. I thought of a... It wasn't funny at the time, but it's kind of a funny story. When we were in Tuesdays, uh, down at Roseville at the bank, where we, do you guys remember when we used to pray at the bank uh, Tuesdays, the old building? And there was a time, <laughs> there was a time when, when there was some teaching. The wives taught, we taught, and I got to teach on identity. And I'm sitting there, and I'm teaching, and, and Rick asked, I don't know if you remember this, you, you asked me this, you asked me a question, I know, and you were leading me to what it meant to be in Christ. And I'm telling you, I stood there and I had no frame of reference in my spirit for that. No, no revelation. And Rick was leading me towards that, right? And he looked at me and he goes, you know. No, I didn't. I didn't. Not, not in here. And the thing that's funny was Kath was sitting next to Rick, and her face was so, she was the cheerleader. She was looking at me going, come on, you can do it. I know you know. I didn't know, not in my spirit. And you know what's interesting? I think you started a segment on what it meant to be in Christ, not long after. And I now know, I now know, and I have Words inside that can speak to what it means to be in Christ. And that's what it, that's what it meant. We are co-heirs. We are the firstborn. Here's a, uh, F.F. Bruce said this, all of the people of Christ are the firstborn children of God through their union with him who was the firstborn par excellence. Our birthright is not to be bartered away like Esau. Because we know what it's worth. We have come to the general assembly. The festive celebration. That's what that means in the Greek. And I guess what I can relate it to is when we come here, do we realize that we're a part of the general assembly? 
in heaven. Man, if we could hear the celebration of the victory of Christ. But when we come and we enter in to worship, that's what we're doing. And we're saying, we belong somewhere else. We're not not here. We belong somewhere else. Love and forgiveness. I'm going to say this real quick. Love doesn't excuse. It changes us. That's what Zion is. And it's interesting that Rick said this. I said this uh, in my notes. He is preparing us to live here. That's what he taught on last week, the discipline of God. He's preparing us to live in this city. That's what this whole life is. He's preparing us to live in a place that we can live with him. But not only does it change us, it motivates us. And I don't have time, but Isaiah 6, we're cleansed, right? And then we're commissioned. We have something to do. Invitation and inclusion. We we now enter boldly, boldly because of Jesus. Not shrinking back. We have access granted through the cross by the only mediator, and I put, I will show you, prayer, prayer, prayer. We have to. This is how we engage God. This is how we engage our world, through prayer. I want to be a better prayer, not because I have to or I'm obligated to it, but I want to see what God sees and I want to bring it to pass. Young people, don't let the world just go right by. Engage in it. Live life on purpose through prayer with God. And it won't be this, wow, five years just went by. No, you've engaged. There is a proverb that says, um, A young man or a son who sleeps in harvest is ashamed to his father. Let's not sleep. Let's engage with God. Amen? New covenant. This is good. You don't get what you deserve. (laughs) You don't get what you deserve. He took what we deserved and gave us life instead. It was about a year ago. I uh, was really discouraged, down, having a hard time. And I remember just looking up at the Lord and I said, I just want to live. Have you ever just put stuff on you? The Lord didn't put it on you. We, we put it on. We just bury ourselves in stuff. And I remember looking up and I go, I just want to live. You know what I really wanted to say? I just want to party. <laughs> I want to have some fun. I'm not having any fun. And the Lord took me to John chapter 17, verse 3. Kevin, this is eternal life, that you may know me, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Get your mind straight, dude. (laughs) And that's life. And that will motivate me. Right? Amen. Grace. 
Mount Zion is full of grace, grace that chose us. If you guys are writing down, 1 Peter 2, 9, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Grace called us. Romans 8, 30, 2 Timothy 1, 9. Grace revealed himself to us. Matthew eleven twenty seven, John fifteen sixteen, and grace now sustains us. Psalm fifty five twenty two, James chapter four five says this: that he jealously desires the spirit that he has put in us. That's the New American Standard. I don't believe that's the right translation. What it's saying is the spirit that he put in us, the spirit that he put in us jealous for, is jealous for us. And that word is zeal. You know what it re- really means? That your face turns red. That you are so, so, I, I, won't, I won't say angry, but so zealous. I tell you, we're the bride Nobody messes with his bride. We're his children. Nobody messes with his children. And he is zealous. Oh, guess what? Even if we mess with ourselves, he's going to deal with that because he's jealous for us and for who he wants us to be, which is conformed into the image of his son. Zion is eternal. We don't know. This is the new new Kevin... McCutcheon version of this scripture. Isaiah says, we have no idea what God has planned for us. We don't. But there's like some appetizers before the main course. Characteristics of that which is to come. There's no curse. We're saying that today. There's no death. No, no death. We have gone through some, some stuff, right, lately. No death. No tears, no pain. Oh, thank God. (laughs) No pain, no sickness, no sin. Complete peace, complete peace. You guys see the equalizer? At the end, the bad guy looks over and Denzel's sitting over there and the bad guy goes, what do you want? What did Denzel say? Peace. And it's just like the devil. He goes, peace. Hmm, that's expensive. But I can purchase it for you. (laughs) Do you remember that? That's what the devil says to us. It's expensive, but I can purchase it for you. Uh Uh-uh. Oh, no, it was expensive. But it cost the Son of God his life. We We will have complete peace. Our enemies will be gone. Gone. No more harassment. No more accusing. Nothing. Gone. Oh, check this out. This is cool. You will have a new name. And only you have that name. Did you know that it says that? So when I hear my father speak, my name, I will know it's me. There won't be 10 million Kevins. I don't know what my name will be. But I'll know when I know. Maybe. <laughs> you know, I had a friend of mine had a dream, um, and this is not theological, 
But he had a dream, and he said an angel came to him. And at the end of the dream, he said, hey, what's your name? And it said the angel looked up and said, hey, can I tell, like, can I tell him? And he opened his mouth, and it was music. And he woke up from the dream, and he said he could smell it. He could taste it. He could feel it. And he went, oh, okay. I know your name. I don't know. Is that awesome, though? That would be really cool. I'm wondering if mine will be like some serious lead guitar. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, and even, even cool, you'll have a redeemed body. I have no idea what that is. But, oh, man, never to die again, never to get old again. I don't Wow. In Zion, our inheritance is received. And guess what? This inheritance never perish, perishes, never spoils, and never fades. Why not? Because it is him. 1 Peter 1.4. And I love what the writer, what name the writer uses. He doesn't use the Jewish name Jehovah. He doesn't use the Yahweh. He says, you've come to Jesus, the human name. Guys, we'll see him face to face, eye to eye. Man, I don't, really? Paul said, I count all things to be in loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The surpass, that's the inheritance. You know, it's funny. People, even the other day, I was talking to a guy, and he was talking about heaven, and he, he thinks of it in human terms. Well, I think my wife's going to get a bigger house than me. That, I mean, to me, I mean, I don't think that's what it is. It's Jesus. And that I'll be known completely by him, and I'll know him. And I'll spend eternity learning to know him. That's the inheritance. I love these, the words to this song. It says, surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. Lord, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. Guys, I want to just say this in closing. Take hold of what you have. Take hold of what you have. We are now in Mount Zion. Now. Take hold of the life that is given to you. Take hold of what Paul says, life indeed. And at the end of this, this chapter, I love where he says, our God is a consuming fire. That used to scare me. It doesn't scare me anymore now that I know this because he wants to burn away the wood, hay, and stubble in our hearts that we would be conformed into his image and that we would live forever with him. Amen? Stand with me. I don't know if you guys got anything. I'd like to pray.
Scripture. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we are sojourning here on this earth and that there's a place for us, a place that we cannot even imagine. And I thank you that you've put eternity in our hearts. And that's what we want to strive to live for. Father, I pray that the seductress, the spirit of this age, would not speak to us and trap us and deceive us into thinking that what's here is best. The best is yet to come. Lord, we thank you for for this world. We thank you for the, the blessings of this world. But Lord, there's something greater, something far greater. Lord, I pray that we would not drift away from what we've heard. I pray that we would not be indifferent to your voice. That we would not call the sacred mundane or common. Lord, we need you to reveal to us in our hearts. We need you every day to speak to us of these things that are coming so that we can persevere. Lord, I, I know you... Uh, made me laugh. We're nine months into the purple realm and I, I was so angry. And you broke in and you said, how about 470 years under the oppressor? Lord, give us strength and give us sight and give us wisdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.